Welcome to True House Stories. I am Lenny Fontana coming out of New York City. And we've been blessed with warm weather, but now it's getting cold and windy and rainy, which helps us begin to get into going inside the club scene. As we all love to put our heavy coats on, get dressed up. And when I say get dressed up, get to look really good for the night and go to your local place or sometimes the long weekends. I have to say I was blessed to play a lot of those long weekends for people that I'm going to bring up in a second for a gentleman that I've worked for in the past. He's a wonderful colleague, total consummate professional, including with the fashion. He is the man. But to say that his parties become truly the most talked about is an understatement. Why do I say that? Well, when they were creating these parties, there was nothing else previous to that to look back at. So you want to say they wrote the script, starting with the Chuff Chuff. Those that know the Chuff Chuff in the Birmingham area, as I asked Jim Chef Ryan, which I'll bring up in a second, where did it begin? It's actually, he's going to tell you, but it started on the river and boat rides and then became bigger and bigger. And later on to create a worldwide brand called Miss Money Pennies, which you can be sure if I tell you, DJs were killing to get up in there to play. Worth every moment. Let me tell you, as a DJ, crowd was well-educated because each and every week, Jim and the people that played along knew their music. They knew how they wanted it to be served. There was a certain pecking order to be dealt with, you know? And with no further ado, I think I did enough. I want to bring up Mr. Jim Shannon. Good afternoon. Good evening, Lenny. Um, good to see you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. You know, Accepted to come on our show. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you, Jim. How are you? Before we get started, because everybody knows I ask only one question, and so easy. <laughs> I'm I'm very good, thank you. I'm uh, yeah, good health and uh, enjoying life. Well done. So since you look really good, you prepared for this. I would like to ask the question is, how does music find you as a young lad? And then you can tell us a story of how you come up through the whole thing. Um, well, that's, a, that's an interesting question. I, I, I uh, got into, well, I mean, like everybody in the UK, our, our sort of uh, the way that we engaged with music at, at a young age would have been through radio. Um, so we would have been influenced fundamentally by listening to on a Tuesday and a Sunday night to the top 30 on a radio. And, um, and I bought my first, well, I was given my first record, which was, which was a very long time ago by a neighbor. It was uh, a track by the move called I'm a California man. <laughs> and um, that would have been probably in the early seventies. Um, I was uh, a fan of Slade, uh, T-Rex, David Bowie, and living in a, well, I'm, I'm of Irish heritage, so 
my um, we were brought up in a, an area called Hansworth in Birmingham, which was a, which was predominantly uh, an immigrant area. So we were um, there was a mixture of Irish, West Indian, and Indian people living in this area. So we we in we were fortunate to have a, a, a real um, music. Lots of musical influences as a result of that um, that upbringing, and particularly, um, I suppose the the most predominant music um, style in um, where we where we were brought up would have been reggae, and and coincidentally, in the seventies or suppose, I suppose the mid seventies, there was a lot of reggae music that was crossing over into the mainstream as well. So we would have been connecting with that through our listening habits. As well as the um, as well as the surroundings, and as well as the people that were friends and neighbours and, and um, associates, so I would say that that allowed then an interest in black music, and my taste evolved from I suppose as a very young person, as I mentioned, pe- uh, people like Roxy Music, David Bowie, Slade, T Rex into uh, Marvin Gaye, into, as I said, reggae, so lots of the uh, the reggae uh, style of music. And, and then that kind of evolved into disco and into, into um, music, I suppose, that I became a little bit more associated with as I became, as I started playing music. So, um, yeah, very much the, the music style and the music influence came about as a result of upbringing and where we, where we were brought up. Yeah, because I noticed that, you know, a lot of English are very well up on their music. You know, they know who the people behind it. They know the producers. They know the artist's life. It's not like you just listen to songs and you just go, oh, that's that song. No, you know everything about the artist. Crazy. Crazy. Yeah. Um. I wouldn't say that in my case, I was. I wouldn't say that I was ever uh, somebody that really sort of totally focused on all that intricacy of of uh, musicians or the people that were behind music. Because, I mean, we were from quite a, a, a poor background, so we didn't have a record player until I was about sixteen. I don't think in our household. So, um, so even though I was being either collecting music. I couldn't play it. <laughs> so, um, you know, so it was a very exciting time for us when we got in our in our household, when we got our first stereo. So that was, um, gave us an opportunity to play the records that were stacking up in, a, in our front room that were never played and gathering dust. <laughs> so, you, know, you take for granted, you know, you see everyone... Later, you don't think, Later, you don't think fundamental, time, fundamental time in the beginning that things were that tight, you know, financially for people. Financially. You know? So you're just dealing with day to day survival, trying to do good in school, whatever it is that you're dealing with. But you never thought about yeah, and you know, my, my radio. I, I, no, my, no, totally. So my father was worked on the buses. Uh, my mother used to. Um, do cleaning jobs and what have you. So, yeah, and I mean, and their focus for us was as as a um, as a family was to try to edu- have us educated um, to give us an opportunity, to, I suppose, to uh, to move 
away from the the uh, challenges that they had uh, as a result of coming to this country. So yeah, it was it was. I, I, I mean, I think as kids you weren't probably aware of those other other than the fact that you know you would be reminded, like, like not having a record player that would that would certainly remind you that you weren't uh, you weren't you, you know you were a little bit left behind in terms of uh, in terms of the. Uh, the, uh, the the lifestyle that most people would have had in, in those times. Yeah, no, I get it. I get it. Wonder why we're getting this echo. Is there is your speakers too loud? Uh, I I I'm not getting an echo at all. Because I'm hearing it coming back at me. Let me just check something. Okay. Stereo. Hmm. Thank you, Ralph. He's saying it's on my side. I have the echo thing on. Okay. <laughs> Let's see. Somebody else here. Sherry hears it too. Hang on, guys. We're trying to figure it out. Figure it out. Not now. Nope. Still here. Hmm. Let me check something. If I, if I mute, if I mute Jim's mic, are we still hearing echo? Somebody write to me. Let's see if anybody hears. You don't hear no echo, right? Okay, so what I'm going to do is, what I'm going to do is when I speak, I'm going to mute you, and then I'll unmute you. I'm going to have to play um, Wizard of Oz. <laughs> okay, so, Jim, I technical issue, but we'll get past it. So, um. You living in the Birmingham area, of course, growing up, your mom and dad, you know, they're blue, we would call blue collar workers. They worked hard for their, they worked hard for their earnings. And that in turn, the focus was education for you guys. Is that correct? Is that correct? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. Um, so uh, the, the way that it works in England, uh, when, when we were kids, there'd be a, an opportunity. There was a, a thing called the 11 plus, and uh, that allowed you the opportunity, if you passed that, to go to what were called grammar schools. And uh, grammar schools, were the grammar school system was based on a, um, on, on establishing for, uh, in a state, a state, um, funded scenario uh, but these schools kind of followed the example of um, public schools so the uh, the dream for our parents for for us as as a family to to uh, to pass the 11 plus and go to a grammar school but in my case I followed a slightly different path <laughs> I decided at the at the age of um, 11 to uh, to do to, to become a Catholic priest <laughs> and, and 
and did an exam um, to uh, go to, which was essentially a Catholic boarding school. But I would say within a year out of maybe 30 students that went to that school, I would say maybe 10 of them were what called what were called church students that were paid to go there by, in my case, the Archdiocese of Birmingham. So uh, it was a boarding school in Staffordshire. So I went there from the age of 11 to the age of 16 with the, I will say, the pretense of becoming a Catholic priest. <laughs> See everyone how this show brings out some truths that you never read nowhere. I never heard this before. never seen this, but this is cool. All right. So keep going. So from 11, 16, you're, you're now be in the thoughts of the pretense of being a Catholic priest. That's correct. So, um, so I was away from home for um, for uh, five, six years. For, so, as I said, from the age of 11 to 16. And um, that was a very interesting upbringing because we were taught by priests. Um, it was a very strict regime. Um, people may argue that it was a decent education, but it was very much an old school education. So... Um, you were, we were taught Latin. Um, we had to go to mass every day, irrespective of whether you were a church student or not. Um, and um, and I suppose from my point of view, you, you did learn quite a lot about the um, underhandedness, shall I say, of the Catholic Church at a very early age. <laughs> so... Uh, <laughs> So yeah, I, I I was quite happy to. Uh, well, I was I was asked to leave actually because uh, at at sixteen I made it very clear that I was no longer wanting to be a priest. And me and a couple of characters were caught in a uh, a local um, local boozer, a local pub, and um, they that was not part of the way that we should behave as young Catholic gentlemen. So the regime was drinking was not part of that, I presume. Absolutely not. No, um, you know, uh, it like I said, it was it was extremely. Um, it was ex the the way that we were we were brought up in terms of, of uh, discipline was just extremely harsh. You know, we were caned regularly, so six of the best on a regular basis from um, from the priest. So there was a specific priest whose role was to cane the students. He was known as the prefect of discipline. That that was um, I don't know whether he was employed or what, but he wouldn't have been employed. He would have been um, he would have been placed in that role uh, by to uh, ensure that the kids at this school were uh, behaving in the manner that was expected of them. Could you never imagine today doing that? The lawsuits? Oh, uh, absolutely not. No. You know, and um, they were, as I said, they were very harsh and very cruel in the way that they behaved towards. But being there, you kind of accepted it. <laughs> you, you, um, you know, it was part of the culture. And and to be honest with you, the more canings you got, the the bigger was the badge of honour. <laughs> Stand tall, get your caning. Indeed, yes. <laughs> 
So moving along, custom 16 now to your 20s, you're going to tell us the next steps of, of, of pretenses and things that happen along. Okay, so I, I uh, did, um, one, when I left that school, I went to, went to a grammar school in Birmingham for two years and did um, um, what, what were uh, A-levels. So it was like the, the finishing part of your education at school. And um, then I worked at Birmingham University for a few years as a computer operator. And there I met some really interesting people, which probably had a real influence in me in terms of um, in terms of developing a real interest in music. There was one guy in particular who used to play in pop bands. Um, I suppose they were they were um, it was post punk, so it would have been new wave. Um, and I kind of got as a result of working with this guy. He was one of my uh, colleagues he um introduced me to well he was a guitarist so he introduced me to um playing music so i, I as a result of his kindness he he, he uh, borrowed me a, a hofner violin bass which is the same violin uh, bass that paul mccartney plays which apparently was quite an easy bass guitar to play so i um so when we worked a we used to work shifts, so after six o'clock in the evening, there'd be no management around. So he'd bring his guitar in, bring the bass in, and I sort of, um, I would uh, get ongoing lessons from him to play the bass, and we would just muck around doing our job and playing an instrument at the same time. So um, and and consequently, because he was doing the the um, the local pub circuit, I would follow him and um you know got a real interest in live music as a result of that and for a little while um myself and my brother who we ended up working together um in very various projects uh we worked we had a couple of bands we went into the studio and recorded demo tapes and um and tried to sell ourselves i suppose as uh, Rock and roll. Well, it wasn't even rock and roll. It was kind of electronic pop with a bass guitar. <laughs> so we tried to uh, try to uh, make make inroads into the music business as a result of that. In the sort of, I would say, was would have been the early eighties. So you becoming the next soft cell, yes, that type of direction because that's around 81 82 so yeah that would have been a sort of 81 82 so our, our initial sound was certainly we uh, my brother played the synthesizer i played the bass we we uh, acquired a um a drum machine a roland doctor rhythm it was cold i've still got it some tucked away somewhere and um we made me and and sorry a guy that he he was friends with um played the guitar so we kind of formed a little band together and um like i said did a did a few gigs we didn't do many gigs we did a lot of practicing we went into the studio and did a demo tape and um and then kind of moved on to other things <laughs> but uh it was uh it was kind of interesting and then i would say in about i was what did it been about 85 um myself and my brother opened the clothes shop so that allowed me to get out of. May we have your brother's name? Yeah, Mick, Michael Ryan. 
So uh, we, um, and, and again, this was kind of coincidence. I was, I, was, I was still working at the university at the time. And um, he, he'd, finished, he'd finished his degree. And he was, he was never really interested in working for anybody. So he, he always had a, an interest in business. He was, um, I suppose, a budding entrepreneur, shall we say. And uh, we saw an advertisement in the local press for um, this store that was, I, I have, I, I, people may be familiar with uh, a, a place called Kensington Market, um, which it's like a lot of stores and lots of, I suppose, different styles. But so there was this place in Birmingham that was opening up, um, and they put an advertisement in the local press and said, uh, "Is there uh, young designers required? Uh, we will um, for for uh, spaces in this in this um, in this store." And I phoned them up anyway, and use, using the uh, the facilities at my workplace, and uh, asked. I, I said I just showed interest and said, "Yeah, I'm interested in in a stall. I'm a, I'm a designer." So, uh, and um, six months later, they contacted me and said, "Are we still interested?" So we we um, did a little bit of research and found places in london that were selling the sort of clothes that we were interested in and and um people were very kind of pointers in the direction of other people that were were um, selling independent people that were selling fashion menswear fashion at the time and as a result of that we opened the clothes shop so it was very much kind of on the seat of our pants so to speak to um to uh, kind of get this thing off the ground, and it did get off the ground, and it was uh, it was a reasonably successful business for quite a number of years. What was the name of that boutique shop that you own? What was that? It was called the Depot. <laughs> um, and as a result of, I think when when you're in the throes of business, you're always looking for other opportunities to. Uh, because you know you never have enough to live on. You're kind of, as I said, living on the seat of your pants to a certain extent. And you know, I left work, and we both worked together in this in this shop. And um, it kind of coincided with the the rave scene happening. And as a result of us being, I suppose, a pair of, I suppose, kind of white boys, really, um, we were, and, and we were, we were clubbing. We were, you know, to a, to a very small degree, I was DJing because uh, the, the store that we initially opened in uh, um, had a DJ booth and they allowed people to come in and bring their records and play their soundtrack to uh, to the uh, the store. So I, that was my first experience of DJing, uh, one of those all-in-one pieces of kit and uh, just playing a few records to... Uh, People that were shopping in this this store. So we, as after our first year in the store, we also opened a shop which was um, which was in the centre of Birmingham. This was just slightly outside, so we were running both of them together. And um, as a result of 
the shop more so than the the store with lots of other people involved in that. Um, we were we were um, requested to start selling tickets for um, the raves that were going on. So this would have been sort of 80, 86-ish, 87. And, um, and this kind of coincided with us getting an interest in putting our own events on. Now, again, how that, if, how that happened was, again, meeting a, a, a bunch of guys on holiday in Greece. Now, the, the narrative always suggests that everything came from Ibiza, which to a large extent it did. But there was, in our case, our, our experience of putting the very, uh, the initial events that we started on came as a result of meeting these guys in, um, in a place called Eos, an island in, in Greece. And these were, and they're still friends of ours today. These guys were uh, soul boys. You know, they were really part of the soul movement, and they were they were associated with DJs like Jeff Young. Um, and they invited us after the after the um, after the holiday. They invited us down to uh, some of their parties on the river on the River Thames, and um, and they were fantastic. You know, just like, this is you know this doesn't happen in Birmingham. <laughs> this is. Um, this is a, a real revelation. So uh, consequently, we decided to put our own boat trips on, on the River Seven. And the first guys alongside myself that DJed were two of the guys that uh, were the DJ, were the sole DJs from London. So the, the initial parties that kind of evolved into the Chuff Chuff parties were um, fundamentally, I suppose, in my case, I was playing reggae, rare groove bits and pieces of, I suppose, uh, loosely would be described as Valeric these days, but, I mean, it was just a mishmash of everything, whereas these guys were very purist in their sound. They played soul, soul, very much soul, a soul sound, and um, that, uh, that kind of allowed us to develop a little bit of an audience. And, and, I mean, these boats were only for about 150 people, so it was a very, very small audience. Uh, but because, and this was pre-us um, becoming a, a ticket agent for all the raves. So we were doing these events. The rave scene kind of come up, came, came about. And consequently, the music style that we were putting on, on these boats, evolved into Acid House and house music. So we were kind of at the right place at the right time. I was a, I was becoming more and more of an avid record collector as a result of that. So my tastes were being influenced as a result of the shops that I was buying my records from, which which were slowly moving into the house music sound, and that's um, that allowed us then to, I suppose, become focused, fully focused on a sound rather than just being party organizers if you like so speaking on that you know as, a, as i'm listening to you and taking everything in you know you gotta and i'm gonna explain this to the people watching this remember everyone there was no social media back then so you did a couple of things to get the word out clothing stores were a big part of getting knowledge of what was going on Okay, music and of course selling tickets so people were coming to the stores. And this is what I was curious about how much money did you see 
in those days going through tickets before you even started the Chuff Chuffs? Um, well, as I said, the, the, uh, once we became established as a ticket agent and there was a network of tickets around the country which essentially involved predominantly record shops um, and clothing shops as well. And um, when the rave scene was at its peak, which would have been, I would say, probably the late 80s, early 90s, and we were, you know, the shop became inundated really with tickets and tapes and videos that they were doing. So, you know, it, it became much, probably much more of a focus of the business than the clothing that we were selling. And, um, uh, I mean, we would have to get security. We would, the, the rave organisers would come to us uh, because quite often we, we got quite a good relationship with them. And, and, you know, what we would say to them was that because our reputation to a certain extent was at stake as well. So what we would say to the, the organisers would be that um, once, and, and plus it was a very underground scene at the time, so you wouldn't necessarily know whether the event was going to take place or not. So we were, didn't want to necessarily put ourselves in a position where if the raid didn't take place, we couldn't refund the ticket money to the, uh, to the, uh, the kids that were buying them. So uh, we would say to them that we would have their money ready for them as, and we were prepared to drive it down, drop it off at the, off, off at the, um, the venues and what have you. But we would hold on to the money until we were 100% sure that the event was taking place. So, so um, and, and we got a reputation as a result of that because the, um, because, the kids trusted us. They could buy their tickets from us and they knew if something was untoward would uh, come about, they would get their money back. And the organisers were quite happy to deal with us because they knew that once the event was taking place, we were quite happy to drop the money off or, or uh, get them to come to us and pick the money up. But, I mean, the amount of cash that was, that was um, passing... Passing our passing through our hands at that time was just, you know, back, black bags of plastic bags full of cash would be delivered to the organisers. So it was, uh, I mean, it was quite a precarious business. But I think, um, you know, maybe maybe because there was uh, our background was Irish, <laughs> there might have been a little bit of <laughs> a little bit of an implication there, should we say? <laughs> Guys, it's like they're cleaning money. They're washing money for everybody in a nice way for their race. <laughs> it was a long time ago, by the way. <laughs> Jim is not a washman anymore. He doesn't run a laundromat service. He's running a clothing business. He's got a proper organization now. And this is where I hate to ask the next question was, the people that you had on the first Chuff Chuff, you said they were a um, soul boys. Who are they? Please search for part two of this podcast on the platform you're watching or listening to. And please do not forget to follow us.